Oliver Reginald Kaizana Tambo. From his conception on the 27th October 1917, within the lush lands of Emampondweni, to his passing in 1993, one thing is certain in his glorious span on earth. And that is, the world became fortunate to witness his unwavering moral fiber, his grandiose love for humanity, his quest to free his people from a draconian rule, and above all, his commitment to justice. It is therefore in this piece that we look at how his values informed the complex existence of Oliver Tambo. As a commander-in-chief of the armed guerrilla movement Umkonto Wesizwe, as well as the quintessential ambassador who conscientized the global community about the atrocities of apartheid. To set us on course of that duality, historian Luli Kalinikos offers a view of how Oliver Tambo's formative years prepared him for the scenic road ahead. Clearly for me, perhaps the, his roots were deeply traditional in a rural area. His father had three wives. They all, according to O.R.'s memories, lived harmoniously. Uh, all the mothers were his mothers. So there's a traditional, inclusive, very social, sociable uh, system, but because of his fine mind and his eagerness to get further education, he was sent to Holy Cross, which was a, a Christian missionary Anglican school. His own mother was quite religious and was looking, it uh, was a Christian, but looking for diff at different churches, and so he learnt to sing hymns and that made him very musical. His mother was very musical, um, which uh, was relevant actually on his visits to MK camps. He would teach them freedom songs and all the soldiers adored him. <laughs> so um, those two experiences, I think, gave him a range of understanding of uh, society, obviously of colonialism as well, um, and also the human condition. And he um, trained to, he wanted to be a doctor. He was always concerned about helping humanity. But because um, Witz University wouldn't accept black students in, in, in the medical school in the mid-30s because they said it would be a disgrace for a black person to, to um, see the naked body of a white person. Um, he changed his mind and decided to do science. Um, he checked at what, uh, with what other people were studying and saw that they were mostly studying BA and the arts and he decided we need black scientists. 
So he was a very logical, very aware sort of person. And he influenced his fellow St. Peter's College, the school, um, in, in his class, the cleverest ones. They all opted for science and maths. He felt this is what um, our people need. So he trained as a scientist. And then, of course, um, he had to, uh, you know, be employed difficult to be employed as a black scientist so he took up teaching and he became a teacher at his old school St. Peter's College um, and back to Johannesburg he met Walter Susulu who had his own office he was an estate agent quite remarkable in those days and um, Walter Sassoulou attracted young people, young professionals like journalists and um, teachers and, and also Nelson Mandela, who was a student at WITS training to be a lawyer. And uh, that's where he was introduced to a, a life of political activism. But he wasn't just introduced to it, he actually pioneered it in a sense. He, Walter Susulu Mandela, Jordan, who um, later went to, uh, to Durban. Um, but those three uh, in particular, and, um, and they, they formed the, the Youth League. Um, so... He became more and more involved and he soon proved to be one of the most reliable leaders, you know, uh, taking minutes, uh, organizing meetings, as well as uh, giving very good input. He wasn't a talkative person, he was a listener. And I think that was another very important quality that was to serve him in good stead in the difficult years ahead, full of contradictions and challenges in exile. In the midst of war, the general rallies his household for a rocky road ahead, and they, wife and litter, beside him, blaze the trail abroad to champion the cause of the movement. Therein lies the innocence of the young, asking, when shall we return back home? Dali Tambo recollects. And I would ask them that question often, um, especially my mother, because my father we would see once or twice a year. And when he was in the house, it was packed with ANC leaders and uh, all kinds of people. So um, she told me the story that when he left to go into exile after Sharpville, um, she said to him, OK, I'm going to follow you into exile with the children. It was myself and Tembi at the time. Um, how long are we going to be out? He said, five years at a stretch, ten. Um, and that turned into 30. Yeah, we, we always knew we would come back. We always knew that we would be free one day, but we didn't know when. As one forages through the troves of archives, 
The name Oliver Tambo imbues sovereignty. It is the same sovereignty that saw him give an impassioned statement at the United Nations plenary meeting, despite being labeled a pariah in his home country by the Nets. Her Honorable Ambassador Melindua Mabuza hones into Tambo's stature as the quintessential diplomat. To convince leaders of the world that you must support this organization. To be able to convince even those who are opposed to the armed struggle that is something that we have to do and got them to support it. They must have trusted the man. They must have understood that he was an ethical man. It's only apartheid that drove him to even pick up arms because essentially he was a man of peace. You know he wanted to be a, 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 an Anglican priest, but he had to choose between being an Anglican priest and being an ambassador of the ANC. But I think as he took up the mantle of being ambassador of the ANC, he didn't drop his priesthood. I think he was effective because he essentially was a Christian and a priest at heart. And he found apparently such a heretical thing, abominable thing, as a, a religious person. An impassioned man on a mission for justice, Tambo galvanized. The first step being to rally support for the liberation movement within the African continent. You know, his first duty was to be a diplomat to go abroad and educate the, the world um, and get their support and eventually turn the tide of opinion against apartheid South Africa. Let them know what was happening and what life was like. Uh, and of course it was a, a, a huge task um, he started off in, in Africa and talked to Kwame Nkrumah and th the newly independent states, Nyerere in Tanzania, Kaunda in Zambia, um, went to Ethiopia, which of course had been a, a, an independent country, the only one that managed to escape colonialism went to Egypt, spoke to Nasser. They all welcomed him and were very excited. And uh, some people who I interviewed, like Kaunda and Nyerere, that I interviewed when I was working on the book, were deeply impressed with him. They really felt that uh, he was, you know, a person of note with, um, Humanism. The rallying would see him forge alliances beyond the continent. And one of those alliances would be with Swedish President Olof Palme during the 70s. And right there, a young Tabombeki would complete the triumvirate of brotherhood alongside the two elderly statesmen. Because he considered Olof Palme as his brother, as his fellow combatant, just fighting on two sides of a trench, the front lines and 
Olof Palme was fighting internationally, bringing up the question wherever he had an opportunity to do globally. And then I thought in the book, Tambolenyok, I should include Tabumbik because the three worked so closely together. And at the center, I put Oliver Tambo, of course, he's the leader. Tambo counted on Tabo to execute some of the plans. He was his emissary, his emissary. Whenever we wanted something to be done quickly, anywhere in the world, especially in Scandinavia where I worked, Tabo would be the person that was chosen for it. Doesn't mean that the other comrades were not his brothers, but in terms of my experience with the Swedes and ANC, that's why I thought it would be good for people to know this part of our history, a rich history. The delineation from an ambassadorial statesman to commander-in-chief of Umkonto Wasizwe beckoned Oliver Tambo to champion four pillars. These pillars would be the grand mobilizers of the people. The first pillar was the mass mobilization of the people in the country. You know that every January 8th, he would make a statement and every year he would pick a topic. I remember 1979, the year of 1979, so it was year of Omkonto because it's the battle of Isandlwana. And that was to mobilize people into Umkonto with Sizwe at the same time. Because the battle was a hundred years, had been fought a hundred years before, where the, the African army defeated the British, well trained with their guns and everything, hands down. The second, and that was to also, he also made sure that on January 8th, he calls upon different sectors of the community, of the society in South Africa, whether it's the youth, the women, the trade unions, to, to organize themselves. And so when in the end they converged as United Democratic Front, it's something that OR had actually envisaged and was building on every year, the mass mobilization of the people of South Africa. The second pillar was the underground operations of our people, mainly trained people, mainly Umkondowesis. They had to be inside everywhere in the country, everywhere practically, in schools, in churches, in uh, offices, in radio stations like here. Kaya was not there then. But, you know, it, he, he had such a brain. His tactics have not been studied. To be able to do these things consistently, persistently with a vision to the amalgamating at a certain point. He, the, the third pillar was the, the hammering blows of Umkondo Wesize and MK victories unknown or maybe not known as they should be in this country. And MK was such an ethical military force 
because the leadership was ethical. You remember how those young people were caught with guns. They didn't point at the enemy to shoot them down. They allowed themselves. They were caught and they went to prison and they went to, to court and asserted the, their role as members of a military of the people of South Africa, as members of MK, as members of the ANC. There was armed propaganda. I remember when Sasol was blown up. Sasol, blown up by MK Cardin. Some people were sending all kinds of messages to, to us in our offices. I was in Stockholm at the time. I remember huge bouquet of roses coming to the office. Swedes saying, we are so proud of the ANC because it was the biggest achievement in a long time, really. And the British press, I think it was the, the Observer said, it was terrorism at its most precise and effective. And it was exactly that which OR said, the hammering blows of the, of the military wing are going to be part of the, 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 the pillars. The last one, the mobilization of the international community. South Africa, through the leadership of our main ambassador, which was OR himself, had representation all over the world, more than apartheid. I don't remember the number of countries, but we far outnumbered apartheid because other countries didn't want to have apartheid offices in their, on their soil. And our work was to mobilize the international community. It, was, it became so powerful, so powerful that major artists of the world were supportive of the ANC. The Harry Belafontes, the Quincy Jones. In all countries, when the British finally had a concert to celebrate the birthday of Nelson Mandela when he was still in prison. That was the work of the ANC, the work of the anti-apartheid movement. It was the, the functioning of the, the effective functioning of the fourth pillar of the struggle. When the people of the United States hammered on their Congress to stop collaborating with South Africa, and there was a bill in Congress to effect that, that said no more deals with apartheid. Young people in universities had been fighting battles with their leadership, with the university uh, uh, vice chancellors to say stop funding, putting our monies into companies that have dealings with apartheid. They didn't listen until the Congress passed the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid uh, uh, Act of 1986. And you know that act was, that bill was passed 
overriding the two vetoes from Reagan. The bill had been sent to him. Of course, he didn't sign. He said, no, it's not going to happen. Came back to Congress. And when that happens, Congress can either repeat, concur to their initial decision, or they can withdraw the bill. They decided we want the bill to go back. And the president of the United States had no option but to then sign sign it into an act. But that is a, was a battle that was fought by ordinary people around the United States, calling their Congress people. Their phones were ringing off the hook at Capitol Hill. People came to Washington to, to face their Congress people, congressmen and congresswomen, to say, we want you to sign that bill. It was one act that was agreed upon by both the Democrats and the Republicans. That was victory, our victory. Victory by our people in the States because those people had identified with our suffering so much that they wanted, it was, it was really a declaration of war if the Congress, it would have been a declaration of war if the Congress had not agreed to, to go ahead sign the bill. So we have the four pillars. You see how they converged. And in 19, that's 86, 87, what happens? The, the Secretary of State, that's the Foreign Minister of the United States, agrees to meet with Oliver Tambo. So many victories scored in the process of getting us this freedom. We now take so much for granted. And whilst the diplomat fights the good and necessary fight, it is Adelaide who holds the familial center. She is that force that incubates confidence in her young to stand up and fight their own battles. I mean, the first thing she instilled in us was to be tough because um, we arrived in 1960s England. You had to, you had to have self-consciousness, self-respect. Um, being a young black boy, um, I fought many times. Yes. It was a fairly racist society. I remember one time at one of the boarding schools that I was at, a kid coming up to me and saying, your father's destroying my father's business. Um, and I said, what's your father's business? He said, diamonds hmm. in South Africa. Hmm. <laughs> um, and we fought. But um, it was it was um, a mixture of normality and uh, having all these uncles and aunts who were revolutionaries. And so whilst many of my friends at that time were into pop stars or movie stars, my heroes were politicians. Um, I knew them personally. Uh, in some cases, as I sat on their knees, I didn't even know what they did. Yes. I remember people like Yusuf Dadu and Joe Slovo and all these people. Um, so many uh, beautiful, beautiful people, uh, but revolutionaries. Um, but to me, they were uncle or aunt um, and it's only as uh, I got older uh, by the time I was 10 I started to understand okay this is what's going on war at its essence is a complex undertaking it is Tambo who would then champion the idea of a humane militaristic engagement with the enemy as poet laureate Ntate attests <laughs> We 
we were trained as soldiers. I think we are the only ones who fought. As I handled the gun, I knew I am fighting a restricted armed struggle. What does that mean? I'll never shoot somebody because they are white. No, I'll defend human race through this gun. Imagine we could have come here and shot all the white children in, in crutches in schools, you know. No. We're fighting a restricted armed struggle. It's contradiction in terms. You know? But it's correct. Hmm? Some of our comrades deviated from that at, at a certain point. And we arrested them for that. Also, there were mistakes that we make where we put a bomb and kills people. That's not us. That is not us. Us was to what do we do to stop the economy from functioning through armed struggle? Later, it became what do we do to go face to face with the security forces and shoot each other? But never the civilians, black or white. Never. And it is this very same war that soldiers would start getting wary. Wars are messy. Solely because human beings themselves are messy. Wars are costly. The toll is not only cerebral, but emotional. His approach to armed struggle, you know, there, was a, there were two, two sides to the armed struggle. The one was the actual struggle of battles. The other is um, the 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 threat that it it had, and um, so you could demonstrate this threat through battles and show that people are fighting back; they're willing to give their lives, um, even if you don't win it in outright war. You have. Uh, sent a message about how deeply you feel about you know your own identity and your independence so you know the armed struggle um, had that that aspect to it uh, when they had their first battle which took a long time uh, because they had to collect um, arms in camps um, there were uh, hundreds of, of young people who actually left the country and joined. And this was before 1976. Um, they left, joined, yeah, even trade unionists who felt that the way uh, to freedom was through um, uh, hitting hard with workers' power. They decided, never mind workers' power, you know, we want the real power of guns. Um, so uh, many of the trade unionists also left and decided to join Umkonto we Sizwe. Um, and so they were trained. They went to Moscow and uh, Germany and other communist countries at the time. East Germany was communist. Uh, and trained and then came back and felt they were ready, ready for a battle. And they waited and they waited. 
And finally, um, one of the most articulate, um, smart uh, people, Chris Harney, raised his voice. They wrote a letter, seven of them, and, and he was the leading figure who said, you know, what's happening here? Are the diplomats becoming lazy? Are they becoming very comfortable with the cocktail parties in Europe and America and in the West, basically? Um, you know, why aren't we ready to fight? What are we waiting for? And that actually pushed the, um, the ANC into having a conference where they all the branches all over the world because the you know the branches were were spreading to America and even India um, they had a meeting and they agreed that you know they've got to the, the ANC must now bite the bullets as it were and then the first attack occurred um, in in conjunction with the the army in Rhodesia, which was um, to, to become Zimbabwe, was Zimbabwe, but they called it Rhodesia. So um, they went on a, a an attack, and they had an engagement with the South African troops who were in this forest called Hwange Wanki, and um, they clashed. Um, they killed some of the enemy and two of their own men were killed and then um, there was a, a kind of uh, parting um, but that certainly sent a message and to the young hearts many are plenty Oliver Tambo inspired period of some of those fond memories is of Dr. Zugi Chabalala. And there, she reminisces. I kind of forgot that I had met him, actually. And um, we arrived in Tanzania, and a few years after we'd been there, they opened a school, you know, Somafko. So, um, and my mother was very involved in Somafco. So even though we didn't go to school there, we spent all of our holidays at Somafco, all of our holidays. And any time there was any sort of ANC, you know, um, uh, celebration or commemoration, they were always done in Somafco because they, you know, there was infrastructure there. And um, once again, Uncle Or is coming, Uncle Or is coming, you know. So it was one of those things. And I think it was June 16 that we were commemorating at the time. And, um, you know, he came, but, you know, he's so down to earth. And he see, it seemed to me that I just remember that, especially when he was interacting with us, the, the youth, the children, the even some of the older, you know, teenagers, because then I was also still quite young, but even like the younger adults, he, you know, it seems like when he talks to you, he talks to you. It's like there's nobody else in the room. It's just you and him. So even if it's just a little bit, you sort of get that, you know, I've got his 100% um, you know, attention 
which was awesome, I think, because, you know, I can just, and for me, by the way, I was one of the lucky ones because my mother was around. But there were a lot of children there who were there without their parents and actually no relatives. So I can imagine that for them, I think just having that person who comes and just literally just, it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation and everybody's waiting, you know, to, to sort of talk to Uncle O.R. And even the very, very small children that were there. So it was... Um, you know, one of those things. And then he stands up to speak. And uh, again, small man, but, you know, his words, you know. And he had this vocabulary that, I don't know, it, it just created a lot of awe in me. You know, it, was, it wasn't your regular sort of, hi, how are you? It almost seemed as if he spoke, I don't know, so, not even the Queen's English, but somebody's English. You know, it was just almost every word was filled with, so many meanings. To you, Uncle O.R., the young people vividly still remember how you touched their lives, how you encouraged them to be proud of themselves. So the title of my letter is My Memory of Uncle O.R. And I say, Dear Uncle O.R., my first recollection of you is actually singing freedom songs with your name in them. Most of them were in Suzulu and some in Susutu. Funny thing is that I knew the words, but had no idea what they meant. <laughs> because at that time, my understanding of these two languages was virtually non-existent. Of course, in my mind, I therefore pictured you as this giant, because after all, I was still very young with a very vivid imagination. And then I go on to talk about, you know, my memory of him in Lusaka, etc. But I do remember that, you know, and I remember singing these songs, but I had no idea what they meant. And here comes this man. It's like, oh, he's not that ingwe that, <laughs> that they talk about. So that's kind of one of, I mean, even probably, because back then they had, there were more songs that I remember about him as opposed to Bo Nelson Mandela, etc. We sang a lot more songs about Uncle O.R. And so you can imagine when he came, it was all about songs about him as well. Yeah, so that's kind of what I, how I remember him. And then the last, the last paragraph, I say, um, how have my memories of you shaped who I am today? I would say that it is a desire to, ser to serve, the desire to work for South Africa, even now in the midst of all this chaos, where we have access to clean water, basic health services, and basic education. Remembering you with fondness, Zukisa Chabalala. Two roles that you, Oliver, straddled with grace. It is those two roles that issue out from a single source. And that source is that all of humanity, all forms of life under the sun, matters. A general and a diplomat. <laughs>